You're listening to the Park Slope Community Church Podcast. To learn more about Park Slope Community Church, visit us online at parkslope.church. Several months ago, I was scrolling through Netflix, uh, which drives my wife completely crazy because she's like, could you stop scrolling and just like choose something already? But I was scrolling through Netflix and I came across a documentary about the Jonas Brothers. Do we have any Jonas Brothers fans in the room? Oh, come on. All right. Um, <laughs> wow, I was not expecting that. I guess great. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, the, the Jonas Brothers were a group about a decade ago, three brothers that came on the scene very quickly. They rose to prominence really quickly. They were global superstars. It seemed like, like overnight. Uh, three brothers, they had all the wealth, they had all the fame, they had all the success um, of anybody you could ever dream of. I mean, they had, they had everything, which is why the title of this documentary really caught my eye. The title of the documentary was Chasing Happiness, which for me, I saw, I was like, that's odd. Like if anybody should be happy, it would be them because they have all the stuff that I think and that we think should make us happy. They had all the money. They had all the fame. They had all the success. So why are they still chasing happiness? But then I thought, well, that's, that's just like each of us. I mean, in some ways it's embedded, it's encoded in who we are. It's in our declaration of independence. Thomas Jefferson wrote that we all have the right to life, liberty, and the, the pursuit of happiness. But about 100 years before that, a guy named John Locke, he wrote, he's a philosopher in about 1690, and he said, he said, listen, for a human being to pursue happiness is just the law of human nature. It's built into who people are. He says, for a person to pursue happiness is just like the law of gravity. It's just the way the world operates. Pursuing happiness is to human nature what gravity is to physics. And I thought, well, maybe that's just a modern Western pursuit. Maybe that's what we do as Americans. Maybe that's what they did in Europe. But is this a global pursuit? Is this a historic pursuit? And I remembered an article. I read a really fascinating article by a historian named David Wooten out of the University of York. And he actually traces the history of mankind's pursuit of happiness. And he goes all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans. And I won't, I'll spare you the historical details that will bore you. But here's what he says. He says, we trick ourselves into thinking we know what is needed to be happy. A promotion, a new car, a vacation, a good-looking partner. We believe this even though we know there are plenty of people with good jobs, new cars, vacations, and attractive partners, and many of them are miserable. They too imagine their misery can, fix by, can be fixed by a bottle of Petros, a, a, a yacht, or a public adulation. In practice... Our strategies for finding happiness are usually self-defeating. There's plenty of empirical evidence to suggest that much of what we do to gain happiness doesn't pay off. It seems that aiming at happiness is always a misconceived project. He's identified a real problem, hasn't he? Our pursuit of happiness has largely been a failed Project, And he's coming at it from a historical, a research perspective. But I think for each of us, we could probably come to the same conclusion based on our own experience. 
It seems like every time we look for happiness in something, that very thing lets us down. So we say, well, that obviously didn't work. Let me go to the next thing. And then that lets us down. So we go to the next thing and on and on it goes. Why do I share all that? Why does it matter? Well, I want you to imagine this. Over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at this amazing announcement that the angels made on the first Christmas, that there was this angel that showed up to a group of shepherds on a hill in the Middle East, and the shepherd, or excuse me, the angel said this, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Good news, great joy, all people. And he announced it to a world full of people throughout history who have been desperately searching for something to give them joy, desperately searching for something that can make them happy, going down road after road after road. And it's been a failed enterprise. So it's into that world that this angel makes the announcement. It's good news that is supposed to produce in us great joy, that joy that we all long for. And if that weren't good enough, that good news of great joy is available for all people, not just the super religious people. Not just the people who grew up in church. Not just the people who feel morally superior to everyone else. Great, good news, great joy for all people. But here's the tension. If on the one hand, great joy, this text tells us, is available for all people. Yet on the other hand, we know that our pursuit of joy and happiness often fails. So we have great joy available, but how in the world do we experience it? What's the disconnect? Why do we keep pursuing happiness and joy and failing when it's, so much, when it's clear that it's available to us? If great joy is available, how do we actually experience it in our real lives? And that's the question we're going to ask this morning from Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 10. This is Luke, the historian, telling us the story of Jesus' birth. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
when we read the Christmas story in Luke 2, I think often we fixate on the details because the details are pretty incredible. We focus everything around the manger, right? The manger is in the center of our nativity. Then we have some animals around the manger. Then we might have some angels on the third level around this. These are details of the story that we've kind of woven into our tradition. They're in our nativity scenes. They're on our Christmas cards. You might have a manger on your Christmas card that's kind of like glowing. They're in the songs that we sing, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. And we read the text and it actually seems like Luke is also emphasizing the manger. So it's like, okay, great. But why in the world is Luke emphasizing the manger in this passage? He, ment he mentions it three times. Yeah, we've already talked about in this series that it shows us that God enters into our mess, which is true. But the text tells us something else. He says that the manger is actually a sign pointing to something else. That's verse 12. And this will be, the manger, a sign for you. So how in the world are we going to find this baby? You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The manger showed the shepherds where to find Jesus. It was a sign that was supposed to get them somewhere. It wasn't an end in and of itself. It was pointing to something else. The manger was a sign. The sign pointed them to Jesus. And Jesus was the one who had joy. Jesus was the one who had peace. And Jesus was the one that had salvation. Have you guys ever... Um, tried to point something out to a dog? Where you're like, you're trying to like point them to a ball, like maybe over there. And you're like, look, like the ball is over there. And what does a dog do? The dog like looks at your finger. Like that's the thing in and of itself. It's like, no, 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 don't look at my finger. Like point, I'm over there, over there. I feel like that's exactly how we read the Christmas text. Sometimes we're like, the text is like manger. We're like, oh, that's cool. Or like shepherds, like that's cool. The angels, like, oh, there's no room in the end. And we're like looking at the finger. And like, I feel like Luke's like, hey, no, no, no. All those things are supposed to point you somewhere else. And that place was Jesus. The manger was significant because it was a sign showing the shepherds where to go. And the good news and the great joy were not in the signs. They were in what the signs were pointing to. Hey, shepherds, this good news of great joy for all people, hey, it's not found in your morality. It's not found in your hard work. It's not found in you being more religious than everybody else. It's found in that person in the manger which you're going to see. So how do we chase happiness? How do we actually pursue joy? Short answer, you don't. You pursue Jesus and you get joy as a byproduct. There was a philosopher named John Stuart Mill and he says it this way. Happiness is the unintended consequence of aiming at something else. I love this. Happiness is the unintended consequence of aiming at something else. In this story, we know what that something else is. It's Jesus himself. Christmas tells us that we don't actually have to chase after joy. Christmas tells us that joy is chasing after us. Yes, the manger was the place the shepherds went to find God. But more than that, the manger was the place where God had come to find them. 
the God of the universe entered into our world. And he's the one who brought joy. He's the one that brought peace. He is the one that brought salvation. And like the shepherds in our lives this morning, everyone in the room, we all have signs that are meant to point us to Jesus. We have these little pleasures. We have these little joys. We have these things that we all enjoy. We have families. We have art. We have friendships. We have great food. We have sports. We have money. And hey, these are all good things. But at the end of the day, all of those good things were meant to point us to an ultimate thing. All of those small joys were meant to point us to an ultimate joy, which can only be found in God himself, who is the source of all joy. And I wonder this morning if we're all so busy, like looking at our finger, you know, we look at all the little joys, we look at all the little signs that we actually never see where it's pointing, which was always God. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, these things, and he's talking about these little joys, these little enjoyments. These things, he says, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But listen, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never visited. Or Jonathan Edwards explaining how God is better than the best experience. He says it this way. He says, hey, these amazing experiences and these relationships, these tastes that we get of joy in this life, these are but shadows. The enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So what are they saying? They're saying, we have these joys, we have these pleasures, we have these things that we love in this life. And like the shepherds, they're signs. They're not ends and in, in, in and of themselves, they are pointing to someone else. So we have to take the little joys and let them point to the ultimate joys. We have to trace the ray of the sun back to the source, which is the sun itself. And here's what is amazing. And here's kind of the irony of it all, is that when we, um, as C.S. Lewis has, we said we have first things and second things. First things are when we worship God and we put God first. Second things are all the other enjoyable things in our lives. And C.S. Lewis says, if you put first things first, you actually get all the second things thrown in. We actually start enjoying every, all the little things in our lives more if we put God first. But if you put second things first, not only do you lose first things, God, but you end up also losing second things. Why? Because those things were never meant to be the reliable sources of joy in your life. Those were rays of the sun. They were never the sun itself. When we follow the signs and we experience the joy of Jesus and we pursue him, we experience true joy because joy is the byproduct of knowing Jesus. Well, you say, that sounds great. That's, that's lovely. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? What do I do with that? What does this joy look like in my life? And for that, I want us to look at the second announcement that the angels said. 
So if this wasn't amazing enough, we had one angel to the group of shepherds. And I said, that was pretty amazing. That was pretty terrifying. But after the one angel made his announcement, there was actually a whole group of angels that came on the scene. Thousands of angels, a company of angels descend upon the hill. And here's what they say, or here's what they sing in unison together. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I wanna work through this verse backwards and show that when we find our joy in God, when we find finally our joy in God, our creator, we actually experience three things. In this text, we see three things that we experience when we find joy in God. The first thing is this. We experience the pleasure of God. Joy in God leads to the pleasure of God. Joy starts with the pleasure of God. The angels in this text are saying something pretty amazing, which I think we just kind of gloss over because it's kind of wordy. It's saying, hey, God is doing something incredible among those with whom he is pleased. Among those with whom he is pleased. And what's incredible about this is that in Christ... For, the, for God's children, for those who are in him, we don't have to wonder what God thinks about us. In Christ, we experience the presence and the approval of our heavenly father. He is pleased. He is delighted. He is overjoyed with us. This morning, what do you believe that God thinks about you. You ever think about that? So when, when, when God in heaven thinks of you, what enters his heart? What enters his mind? Because that narrative is going to shape how we live out our faith. Well, I, I think probably a lot of us in here would say, well, if God even thinks about little me at all, he's probably disappointed. He's probably mad. Gosh, Logan, could you just pull yourself together, man? Why can't you just do better? Why aren't you like that other guy? Why do you keep making that same mistake? We say, well, if there is a God in heaven, and if he is thinking about me at all, he probably is not happy with me. He's probably not pleased with me. He's probably disappointed or angry. But the message of the Bible, and this is remarkable, is that when we trust in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family and God becomes our father. And when he sees us, he sees us in Christ. He sees us as he saw Jesus. So he loves us, he delights in us, he is pleased with us. And we don't have to wonder. There's this amazing scene. We got to celebrate baptism this morning, but in the scripture, we see Jesus getting baptized And he comes out of the water and the father declares over him. He says, this is my son. With him, I am well pleased. Gosh, wouldn't we all love to hear our fathers say that, right? We long for that. This is my son. I'm proud of him. I love him. I'm so pleased with him. And think about Jesus' story. 
This was before his public ministry started. This was before he did any miracles. This was before he rose from the dead. This was before he died for the sins of the world. And God is like, no, this is my son. This is my boy, and I am proud, and I am pleased. Do you know that in Christ, God makes that same declaration over you? This is my son. This is my daughter. With him, with her, I am well pleased. There she is. That's my girl. I'm so proud of her. I love her. There he, that's my boy. I love him. I'm so proud of him. And you say, yeah, you don't know what my week looked like. You don't know what my morning looked like. Surely God is not saying that about me. I mean, this week, my life was an absolute wreck. This week, I, I basically made all the choices opposite than what God would want me to make. I made terrible choices. I ran from God this week. God is certainly not saying that about me this morning based on my performance this week. Anybody feel like that? I know I do. I come in here on Sunday mornings and you think, ah, this wasn't, wasn't a good week. I, gotta, I can't worship like this. I gotta kind of more worship like this. I'm ashamed. But that's not the story of the gospel. Because what the gospel says is that God declares that over you, not based on your performance, but on what, based on what Christ has done for you. And that's why it's called grace. Our faith is based on grace. So maybe you don't deserve it, but God gives it anyway. That's the story of the gospel. So we can come in here with confidence. We can approach God with confidence, not because we got our acts together, not because we're morally superior to anybody else, but because of what God has declared over us. My son, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Would you receive that this morning? Some of you are just living under a weight of condemnation and guilt from God that he doesn't want to give you. He said, if you are my son and you're putting faith in Christ, listen, I declare over you, you are my son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. But here's the question. How much does it matter to you that you have God's approval? How much weight do you give that in your life? Because our ability to be joyful in all circumstances is a result of how much weight we give God's pleasure in our lives. Let me explain. So when you find your value in what God says about you, you find your value in God's acceptance, then all of a sudden you can find joy in anything. Good times, bad times, doesn't matter the circumstance, when we value God's presence and approval in our lives, even when life goes really wrong, we still have a joy that sustains us because we know God and we know what we have in him. So when life punches you in the face, and we have all been there, you go through a season, you go through a year, you go through a month, you go through a day, and you just feel like you are getting pummeled from every side. It feels like everything that could go wrong is going wrong. At the end of the day, you can put your head down on your pillow and say, yeah, that hurt. I hated that. This was terrible. But you know what? At the end of the day, I still have God's love. I still have God's presence. And I still have God's acceptance. And that is the greatest treasure on earth. 
And all of a sudden your joy is no longer like this. Your joy becomes steady. No job loss can touch your joy. No sickness can destroy your joy. Death itself cannot remove your joy from you because it's not found in you. It's not found in your performance. It's not found in how well your circumstances are doing. It is found in God himself. Second, when we experience God's joy, we experience peace from God. Joy in God leads to peace from God. And there's something really obvious in this story that I just wanna, I wanna draw out for us this morning because in our culture, it's something we actually don't hear a lot. Joy and peace come from someone outside of ourselves and not from searching within ourselves. So our culture has a solution for finding joy. Here's how it typically goes. You're gonna see this in all the movies you watch. You're gonna see this in all the TV shows that you watch, all the music that you listen to. How do I find peace? How do I find joy? Well, here's what you need to do. You need to search deep within yourself. Go to the core of who you are. Figure out who you really are. Find that inner joy. Find that inner peace. And then come out and show that to the world. Figure out who you really are, and then you will be happy. Peace comes from within. The Bible gives a totally opposite picture of where peace and joy come from. It comes from outside of yourself, from God. So don't look within to find happiness. Look for joy from outside. Look at the rays that are going to lead you up to the sun. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it's one of those words that's really hard to translate into English. So when we, when we say peace in the English language, we typically mean um, absence of conflict. So, hey, I'm just glad that I'm finally at peace with my mother-in-law or with my friend at work or with whoever it is. We've made peace. There's no more conflict. Or we say, this nation made peace with that nation. Hey, the war is over. There's peace. But in the Bible, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is much broader. It means fullness. It means wholeness. It means flourishing. The wholeness and goodness of God dwelling inside of you. The fullness of life inside of you. That's what peace is. So yeah, absence of conflict is great, but much more than that, there is a presence of joy. So when God says, hey, peace with all those who I'm pleased with, my my children, peace, he's saying, hey, yeah, I'm taking the conflict away between me and you. Your sins are forgiven. Our, Our relationship is reconciled. But he's also saying, not only am I taking that away, but I'm filling you up with joy filling you with my spirit so you can flourish and you can have wholeness and completeness. But that joy and that peace comes from outside. It does not come from within. Third, when we experience joy, we experience praise to God. When we experience Jesus and his joy, we not only have peace from God, we we don't just experience the pleasure of God as a father loves his son or daughter, we experience a new type of praise to God. Did you notice that the angel sang, glory to God in the highest. Their song was one of worship. It was one of praise. It was one of giving honor to God. 
a life of joy will always be a life of worship to God. A life of peace is always a life of praise. Why? Well, the song that the angels sing is pretty impressive. In the Bible, we actually see angels singing praise to God over and over again. It's like they dwell in God's presence, so their default reaction is worship. And like something happens, it's like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, almighty God is unbelievable. God is amazing. But then we actually see in the book of Hebrews, it really this interesting tidbit about the angels. It says, they look into our salvation. The angels who dwell in God's presence look at what Christ did for us. And it says they're, they're overwhelmed. They're like curious. They're like, can you believe this? Are you kidding me? This is amazing. This is wonderful. King Jesus, born as a man, crucified as a criminal, resurrected as a king, like, how in the world can this be? The angels are all in God's presence looking down at what God has given to us. And they're, the, what in the world? Unbelievable love. This is this amazing grace. What incredible power. The king of the universe died for a planet of people that betrayed and rejected him. And the angels are just looking down like, whoa. I cannot believe that. But then we hear about the news and we're like, yeah. Heard it before. Celebrated it last Christmas and Easter. Have we lost the wonder? Have we lost the praise? Have we lost the worship that the angels look down at us and be like, how are you not just like overwhelmed by the grace of God in your life? And this is exactly what happens to the shepherds. The shepherds, they actually follow the sign. They go to the manger. They experience Jesus and something changes. At the, end of the, at the end of the story, it was not just the angels worshiping God. Notice who it was. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So the shepherds join the song. And that is the invitation this Christmas for you. Yeah, the, the angels are looking in at what God did for us and they're worshiping and praising. And we have an invitation to join their song. Verse 11, you know, he talks about the good joy, the great joy, and he says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Gives us three titles for Jesus. Hey, here's who you're going to see. The signs are pointing to Jesus, and here's who he is. He is Savior. He is Christ, and he is the Lord. So if you're saying, I need that wonder, I don't have it, receive him as Savior. Because it's not just, he's not a hypothetical savior for a hypothetical sin in a hypothetical world. He is the savior for you in this world with your sin. He says, if you'll come to me, you'll be reconciled to me. I'll forgive you. I'll adopt you into my family. That is for you. Receive him as savior. And he says, trust him as Christ. 
Christ was from an Old Testament word from Messiah, which means anointed one, the promised one who was coming to reconcile all things. This king, trust him. What are the areas this Christmas you need to say, I've been holding on to this way too tightly. I'm going to hand that over to the Messiah. I'm going to trust him. Receive, receive him as Savior. Trust him as Christ. Submit to him as Lord. Because the baby in the manger, in all actuality, was the king of the universe. And so when I baptized Pedro this morning, I said, do you... Um, to believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? That's a savior question. Yes, I believe in what Jesus did to save me. Are you willing to go wherever he calls you to go and do whatever he calls you to do? That's a lordship question because all of a sudden when we come to Jesus, we are no longer in charge. The king of the universe is in charge. So maybe this Christmas, we just need to submit to him as Lord and say, hey, I have been calling the shots for far too long. From now on, you call the shots. I'm submitting to you as the king. I've been the king in my own heart and in my own life and in my own family and in my own world far too long. Jesus, would you be king of my life? Let's pray together. Thank you for joining us at the Park Slope Community Church Podcast. For this and other messages, visit us online at parkslope.church. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining us at the Park Slope Community Church Podcast.